Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology in Ram. My guest today is the one and only uh, Lee Strobel, who is a former investigative journalist, uh, former atheist turned Christian, uh, documented through his uh, very well-known book, A Case for Christ. He's written uh, many books since then, including the about-to-be-released book called Is God Real? Exploring the Ultimate Question of Life, where he deals with um, some of the challenges to the Christian faith, both on a philosophical, theological, and and one might say a personal or relational level, like if God is good and um, can stop bad things from happening to people, why doesn't he do that? Um, we get into other questions around the significance of intelligent design, or and more specifically, um, DNA, what, what that uh, says about um the possibility that God is the author of creation rather than um, not God being the author of creation. We get into lots of other questions that he deals with in his book. So I had a really wonderful time talking to Lee, very down to earth, uh, very intelligent guy, but I just really enjoyed how raw and real and down to earth he was. And I think you're going to really enjoy this uh, engaging conversation. So please welcome to the show for the first time, the one and only Lee Strobel. Lee, thanks so much for coming on Theology and Rob. I'm glad to be with you, Preston. Yeah, I'm glad uh, I finally get to meet you. My son is a big fan of yours, and I know you both went to uh, Aberdeen to get your PhDs, and yeah. uh, so I'm, I've been looking forward to connecting. Well, I, I remember when Kyle showed up to Aberdeen, the word on the street was, dude, I think Lee Strobel's kid is studying here. You know, like, I'm like, no way. Wow, this is like famous. And then now, you know, as I... Um, Offline, you know, I said, you know, wow, it's really good to talk with Kyle's dad, you know. So I don't know if you enjoy being <laughs> Kyle's dad or if he enjoys being Lee Strobel's kid, but either way, right. yeah, you both are doing great work. For those who don't know who Lee Strobel is, you know, can you give a little backstory? And I would love, to, as it pertains especially to your, your, you were an atheist and then had a very interesting, I'll say, conversion journey. Um, yeah, give us, give us this, the, the, the backstory there. Sure. I um, you know, was trained in journalism and law. I was an atheist. I was the legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. So I was covering major trials around the country, uh, Supreme Court decisions, things like that. And uh, my wife was agnostic, spiritually kind of confused. And uh, she met a woman who was a nurse and a Christian, a neighbor. They became best friends. Um, they began to have spiritual conversations. The neighbor brought my wife, Leslie, to church with her. And uh, then she gave me the worst news I could get as an atheist husband. She said, I decided to become a Christian. <laughs> and first word that went through my mind was divorce. I was going to I was going to walk out. But wow. in fact, I don't usually say this, but um, uh, the reality was when she told me she'd become a Christian, I was so mad. Uh, I, it was time for me to mow the lawn. I went out and uh, she had just planted a beautiful flower garden and I mowed down the entire flower garden. <laughs> no, <you didn't. laughs> I was a little angry at the time, but, uh, I thought, you know, if I could rescue her from this cult that she's gotten involved mm. in, um, all I have to do is disprove the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, so I spent two years um, investigating not only the resurrection evidence historically, but also science issues and philosophy and so forth. And um, finally, on November the 8th of 1981, coming to the conclusion that in light of the strength of the evidence for the truth of Christianity, it would have taken more faith to maintain my atheism than to become mm. a Christian. Wow. And that's when I kind of reached my verdict in the case for Christ. And um came to faith that day. And, and, uh, like my wife, my life began to change, uh, mm. 
ended up leaving journalism a number of years later uh, at a 60% pay cut to uh, join the staff of a local church. And uh, it's just been a great adventure ever since. Are there some big, like, what were some of the key intellectual arguments maybe for or against, so for the resurrection or for Christianity that really stand out to you as kind of the, maybe the tipping point. Um, and again, that yeah. could be something where arguments you had against Christianity that you realized weren't as strong as you thought or arguments for Christianity that you began to appreciate. You, you know, it's funny. Um, when I was a little kid, they, they uh, I got a toy. It was a, it was a punching bag kind of a thing. And, and it was weighted on, the, it was a clown and it was weighted on the bottom. It was inflated. And so you'd hit the clown and it would go back. And then because it was weighted on the bottom, it would bounce back up. And uh, it was a common toy back in the fifties uh, when I was born, when I was born. But um, uh, when it, Chris, the, the investigation I did into Christianity reminded me of that clown because I would hit it with an objection, with a question, with a uh, a doubt, a concern, a hesitation. I would hit it hard. I thought, and it would go back, but then it would. I would find an answer. I would find something that satisfied my heart and soul. And, and, and every time I would hit it, it it kind of got annoying after a while. I'd find an answer and it would boom, it would bounce back. I'd have to hit it again. And that was kind of the journey and and took a year and nine months to do that. Uh, Now, back then, unlike today, there was not a proliferation of popular level resources to go to. You know, I mean, yeah. nowadays there's incredible resources out there on a popular level for uh, people to read and, and analyze and so forth. Back then, I mean, I'm, I'm in libraries using microfilm and, and microfiche, <laughs> you know, and, and I remember going into one library and doing an interlibrary loan. Back in the 1800s, there's a, a, a famous lawyer who um, actually became one of the founders of uh, Harvard Law School. And um, he wrote a, a book on the evidence of the Gospels, the, the um, accounts of the Gospels, arguing that they were reliable. And uh, so I wanted to read it because he was a great legal mind. Well, I remember putting in a interlibrary loan. And then I forgot about it. And about six months later, I get notified about, hey, oh, your gosh. book. And they had found it in some obscure library. And it was held together by rubber bands. And, but that was the kind of research you were doing back then. And in fact, somebody asked me recently, what books did you read in your investigation? I actually put together a little list. I'll read you some of them, give you a yeah. sense of what I got into. But I read Bertrand Russell, uh, several yeah. books by Russell, uh, Albert Schweitzer, uh, yeah. Anthony Fu, uh, the atheist, uh, David Hume, of course, on miracles, uh, Albert Camus on uh, Christian metaphysics, um, J.I. Packer, read some early early to me, Christian stuff, J.I. Packer, uh, Norman Geisler, John Stott, basic Christianity. There was a book by a guy named Frank Morrison, who was also a journalist, although I think he was really in the advertising side, who wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone on the Resurrection many Uh, years ago, the evidence. I remember reading that. The book I referenced, Simon Greenleaf, Testimony of the Four Evangelists, uh, Mere Christianity and Screwtape Letters by Lewis. Uh, some stuff by John Warwick Montgomery. I don't know if you know him, but yeah, interesting. Yeah. he's an interesting character. Um, uh, the Everlasting Man by Chesterton, uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, Blaise Pascal, uh, Francis Schaeffer. I read the Quran. I read the Book of Mormon. So that was kind wow. of the the process I went through. And um, as I say, I'm, I'm envious of people that kind of do something similar today because there's a lot more available to them. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's overwhelming though. Like when I, when I'm reading, as you know, you can see me. I got a lot of books behind me. I love to read and research, but. The hard thing now is that, you know, I'll come across a footnote. Somebody will, somebody will quote some something. I'm like, man, that's brilliant. They'll footnote it. And within yeah. seconds, it's ordered. I just ordered yeah. my Amazon card. And then it comes. And then <laughs> by the time I finish right one before, book. Right before this call, I did that. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, I'll read a, for every one book I read. I feel like I've tried to order 10 or at least, you know, maybe I for financial reasons have, have abstained, yeah. but then I've got stacks of books and I just can't get through them all. So it's almost this is glut of information and I just can't consume <laughs> all that I want point. to. Literally right before we did this interview, um, <laughs> I did the same thing and, I, and the book was like $27. Yeah. And I'm thinking, part of me thought, well, that's a lot of money. Should I bet? Yeah. What the heck? And, I bought it. <laughs> and, it comes, and the nice thing about that, it comes tomorrow, you know, because I know. We just got an Amazon warehouse here in Boise, so I've ordered stuff that has come later on that that afternoon. Wow! Yeah, wow. you guys are coming up in the world. Oh yeah, yeah. we're getting in and out here in a couple months. <laughs> um, you get electricity soon. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. My internet's still terrible, but uh, the resurrection. So for me, I, when people rely on like the biblical evidence for the resurrection, I'm always like, well, wait, well, hold on. Like, if I was a skeptic, I'd say you're using the very book that you're trying yeah. to prove is correct. So don't, don't give me like, well, you know, passages in the Bible, but the big in my, and I'm not, so I, I, I am not an apologist at all. So I may be saying something totally stupid or so obvious. So please forgive me. But the Bible, as far as we know, was written by men. And yet <laughs> the testimony is mostly women. In fact, it was the guys who were doubting. So it's like, okay, let's, peel back to curtain a little bit. What are the odds if this did not happen that a bunch of male writers in a male centric world would go out of their way to fabricate all these women testifying to the resurrection? What what's the counter argument to this? That just seems to me like at least that that's at least like well, odd, you it, know, that they would it's do that. A good argument because, you know, historians use what's called the uh, um criterion of embarrassment, which means that if you're reading a claim made by an ancient writer, Josephus, Tacitus, Suetonius, or whatever, mm -hmm. and th they make a certain claim, if the claim is embarrassing to them or hurts their own case, mm -hmm. they're probably telling the truth. Because if yeah. why would they do that? They're not going to make up something that's going to hurt their own case. And so we look at the, uh, the empty tomb of Jesus and who discovered the tomb empty. It was women. And, you know, Josephus talks about uh, in the first century Jewish and Roman culture, how women's testimony was generally not allowed in a court of law, was not considered to be credible. Um, the Talmud talks about the shakiness of women's testimony and how maybe you shouldn't take it so seriously in some cases and so forth. So it was embarrassing to the gospel writers that women discovered the Timothy, and yet they say it. Yeah. Why would they do that? Because they're probably telling the truth. Yeah. So I think where the circular argument comes around, I think, is if we say, oh, the Bible says the word of God, therefore, yeah. I'm going to trust everything in it as being the word of God. Well, that's, you know, but I approached it not as being divinely inspired, not as being the word of God, but uh, or inerrant, but I approach it as just being a set of ancient writings. And I could take the same technique techniques like the criterion of embarrassment that I would use in analyzing any other ancient writing and apply them to the pages of the New Testament to try to determine is it telling me the truth. So I think that's legitimate. Um, and, uh, and, and you've hit on something I think is a really good point. The, the uh, criterion of embarrassment seemed to suggest that, and well, golly, talk about criterion of embarrassment. 
Jesus is crucified. Right. I mean, that's a horrific, awful, <laughs> terrible right, right, right. thing to, to even talk about. That yeah. is an embarrassment in the first century. Right. Uh, yeah, that's not that's not uh, the ingredients for a successful movement right. to say our leader was crucified by the state for treason. Exactly. Um, yeah. Like it's not something you would fabricate if you're going to fabricate something. It wouldn't right. be. It wouldn't be that. And I, I feel like though, don't you think most even secular scholars? would say he was crucified. He was maybe accused yeah, or no perceived question. to be a revolution. Like that's, it's pretty rare that somebody would say Jesus either didn't exist. I mean, very rare, right? They would say he didn't even exist. Yeah. That's that was, that just historically yeah. seems dumb. Crucified. Yeah. Most likely you have secular testimony, yeah. several, like you said, Tacitus and Josephus and others. Yeah. Obviously it's the resurrection that that's the sticking point. What would be the counter argument to that? The, the, what I, the point I made about the, you know, the biblical writers, testifying or saying that it was a woman that showed up at the tomb. Is there a good, is there a counter argument to that? Or is that just is kind of ignored or I think people would just say it's not, it's not particularly strong evidence, but to me, it's part of the case. It, it sure. is one element of the case. You know, I don't look at the case for the resurrection or the truth of Christianity as being a chain with links in it. Then, and if mm. you take out a link, the whole thing becomes useless. Okay. I see it, and and I think William Lane Craig uses this analogy more as as chain mail. You know, the like an armor that that um, ancient gladiators would use. It's interlocked and so forth. Then, if you take out a, a link, it doesn't fall apart. Right. And so, uh, I think you'd say that the criterion of embarrassment is suggestive and interesting and and provocative and and uh, useful, but not conclusive. Um, and yet you're right. The, the question of the, whether Jesus was truly dead, if he crucified, because some people, you know, especially in the 19th century would claim that, oh, he swooned. He, he, uh, right. he was not resurrected, but he was revived by the cool, damp air of the tomb because it wasn't really dead. I mean, that's ridiculous. If you look at not only do we have multiple accounts in the New Testament that talk about his death, we have five ancient sources outside the Bible that talk about the death of Jesus. Josephus, Tacitus, mm-hmm. uh, Maribar, Serapion, Lucian, uh, even the Jewish Talmud. So, um, uh, you know, you go to an atheist New Testament scholar like Gerd Ludeman, and he says um, uh, the death of Jesus by crucifixion is indisputable historically. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's interesting. Uh, several years ago, uh, some historians and, and physicians did an analysis of the death of Jesus. It was published in a, in the Journal of the American Medical Association, which is a secular, scientific, peer-reviewed medical journal. Mm-hmm. And they went through what happens during crucifixion. What does the historical record tell us about Jesus and his crucifixion and so forth? And their conclusion is, they said, quote, clearly the weight of the historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. So here you have a secular, scientific, peer-reviewed medical journal confirming it. So, you know, I like to look at corroboration. Uh, you yeah. know, I, I like to look at how do, um, not just an assertion, but is it corroborated? And, and, and I've tried to do that in all my books. Hmm. That's good. That's good. I, and I know that some, one of the counter arguments with Josephus is that, well, Josephus's writings were preserved by Christians. And there's evidence that they, it's been kind of some of the manuscripts of Josephus have been kind of doctored up and that passage where he talks about Jesus has been kind of embellished. And I, and I think some of it ha- has been, but there's been uh, a lot of critical work done on that and saying yeah, there, there there's has. enough of that passage that through critical, te- through textual criticism can be shown to be original. And there, there's enough there to testify that he did, you know, j- actual just jo- the actual Josephus did 
talk about yeah. the crucifixion. You know, did he yeah. call him the son of God? And did he affirm that he right. did all these miracles? Well, that, that may have been added by um, Christians, but clearly there was a messianic claim that he, that this historic Jesus made and he was crucified for that. So, right. Um, and he makes two references to Jesus. You know, he made a right. reference to James, a brother who was, who was killed. And, and uh, in, in my book, um, the, um, the case for Christ, I actually interviewed in a story. I'm trying to think of it. If it was Edmund Yamauchi, oh. uh, or if it was, um, um, Bruce Metzger, but one of the two, I, I talked to him about the Josephus passage and, okay. uh, you know, was it, was it doctored and so forth. And, and the point was that he made, which I think is a good point. Okay. Let, let's, let's, let's believe it is. Let's just give you that. And let's take out those things, which were probably could have been inserted by yeah. later creators. Let's take those out. It still bears testimony right. to yeah. the identity of Jesus, the existence of Jesus, his death and so forth. So, right. um, without yeah. conceding that, yes, indeed, those details were later added, but would Josephus have called them the Messiah? You know, right. I mean, probably not. I think he probably, he, he, I think, yeah, I wish I had it in front of me, but I think he would have said he claimed to be, and I think yeah, maybe I mean, some manuscripts so say Josephus says he was the Messiah. Or something. So those kind of differences, like, well, yeah, we, I can, yeah, I can deal with that. You know, right. uh, have you? I don't know if you've read stuff by uh, Peter Williams from from Tyndale House. Um, yeah, uh, he's done some great yeah. recent work on the historicity of the Gospels and and yeah, brought in stuff that's like really fresh. Yeah, work. It's really really good. Yes, yeah, I um, like him a lot. Yeah. All right, so you're 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 forthcoming, but by, by the time this podcast is released, I think we're about two weeks out from the release of "Is God Real?" Exploring the ultimate yeah. question of life. Um, I, I confess, I've not well, <laughs> I haven't read it yet because your your yeah. publisher has not sent me a copy. I'm going to throw them under the bus. I don't know who <laughs> published it, but <laughs> that's fine. Um, but here you deal with kind of a different, ang- I mean, a similar but different angle. You know, questions yeah. like um, I, the big one for me would be the problem of evil. Um, if God is good and all powerful, why doesn't he, why does he allow these things, bad things to happen? Um, he could intervene and chooses not to, even if he's not causing abuse and genocide and war and all, you know, um, he certainly could stop it if he wanted to, but is choosing not to. I mean, this is a classic question, but I, I think in my anecdotal experience, this might be one of, if not the intellectual hangups people have with Christianity? Do you see this as being kind of one of the big ones? I mean, yeah, you know, in, in my, my new book, um, is God real? I, I, first off, I build a case from science, history, and philosophy that yes, God is real and that okay. Christianity is true and that other worldviews, pantheism, uh, atheism, uh, and so forth, um, fail the tests of scrutiny. Um, and that, and that Christianity really does pass those tests. And so I build that case, but then you know, I say there's there's at least two big arguments against it. Uh, one of them is, OK, if God is real, why is there suffering in the world? Mm-hmm. And then the other one and which is the number one question. Um, okay. I did a survey, a national scientific survey through the George Barna organization a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And I asked a cross section of American adults, if you could ask God only one question and you knew he'd give you an answer right now, what would you ask? And by a factor of five or six, I mean, uh, this question was the number one question. Oh, wow. Um, But interestingly, I was kind of shocked by this. The number two question that philosophers say uh, is uh, is being raised increasingly, especially among young people, is, okay, if God is real, why is he so hidden? And uh, so I deal with that in the book as well. So I try to tell the affirmative case. I try to deal with the, the, the challenges and then let the reader make up their own mind. 
Um, but it, it, it consistent with my other books and my approach, since I'm not a theologian, is uh, I seek out really smart people and uh, and and, <laughs> and talk to them. That's that's my great skill is talking to smart people. Well, so I, um, <laughs> that 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 approach, though, I I think that. I know that was the 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 way you went about you know your first book back in eighty one or eighty whenever you did the research yeah. for it, and that that's probably an outflow of your just your passion for being an investigative journalist, and that was just kind of right. who you were. But honestly, this kind of dialogical approach, I think, actually will end up resonating a lot more with like younger millennials, Gen Z. Oh. I don't know if they want you know you know these kind of old white guys telling them, here's what you might believe. <laughs> like that's kind of a turnoff these days, but, but, but an honest dialogue I think no. is, is way more approachable. It's why people can listen to a three hour Joe Rogan podcast or something. And it's just bantering right. around people. You know, it's like, I think people, they, they enjoy learning through dialogue, if not the same, maybe perhaps even more than just absorbing a monologue. So I love this. Yeah. So you talked with, um, I mean, William Lane Craig, um, about yeah. the cosmos requiring a creator, can you right. sum up? That's a complex argument that's that's been around. Um, yeah, I think Aquinas. Yeah, was that Aquinas yeah. that started that or? Well, or? well actually, actually, there are a lot of. He talked about prime mover and things like okay. things like that. But, um, actually, it has roots in Islamic theology. Oh, really? Um, yeah, medieval Islamic theology, uh, because uh, Islam also believed in the origin of the universe. You know, the popular opinion among scientists uh, was that the universe always existed, that it didn't have a okay. beginning. And uh, Christians and Muslims uh, would base their opinion that, no, 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 there was a beginning based on scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, over the last 50 to 80 years, we heard a series of scientific discoveries that have made it clear that there was a beginning right. uh, at some point in the past. Okay. And so the argument is, is uh, as formulated by um, the Muslim philosophers, uh, is, which is now supported by science, which is um, um, whatever begins to exist has a cause. We now know that the universe began to exist. Mm-hmm. Therefore, the universe must have a cause behind it. So what kind yeah. of a cause can bring a universe into existence? It must be itself uh, transcendent because it's separate from creation. It must be powerful given the immensity of the creation event must be smart given the precision of the creation event, yeah. must be personal, had to make the decision to create, must be immaterial or spirit because it existed before the physical world, um, must be eternal or timeless because it existed before physical time came into being. Mm. Um, there would be probably just one creator because Occam's razor says you shouldn't you know, multiply causes beyond what you need to achieve an effect. Okay. So you go down that line and you got to pretty good description of the God of the Bible. So there's a fair amount. Yeah. And then when you couple that with the argument of the fine tuning of the universe, um, it forms, a, I think, personally, personally, if, if I were to redo my investigation from years ago as an atheist, mm-hmm. looking at the current findings of cosmology and physics, a fine tuning of the universe and beginning of the universe, that would be enough for me to know that God exists. Hmm. Um, and when you read through the evidence uh, that I present in the book, I mean, it's clear, you know, talk about the, how the universe is fine tuned on a razor's edge so that life can exist. You know, I'll give you one example, um, picture a ruler that goes across the entire 15.8 billion light years width of the universe. So, (laughs) you know, broken down in one inch increments. That represents the, the range along which the force of gravity could have been set, could have been set anywhere along that continuum. And yet it's set at the exact right point so that life can exist. Now, 
What if you change the force of gravity one inch compared to 15 billion light year width of the universe? Intelligent life is impossible anywhere in the universe. Wow. That's just one of about a hundred different parameters of physics and numbers that govern the operation of the universe Mm -hmm. uh, that that show that. And I interviewed a a physicist with a a doctor from UCLA who's a professor of physics and does work at the the big collider in Switzerland and has written 900 scholarly articles that have been published. I mean, this guy knows his stuff. And uh, I said, um, in light of the the evidence uh, and the fine tuning, I said, what are the odds that it could have happened by chance. And he looked at me and he said, well, we, we physicists have a term for that. I, I said, what? He said, ain't going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, was he, so, was he a religious person or was he not? He's a Christian. He's a Christian. Okay. Yeah. Okay, he's okay. a secular university. Okay. And, um, but um, so personally, I think the evidence of, uh, of cosmology, the origin of the universe and the fine tuning, to me, that's enough. But yeah. then you couple it with a newer discovery. Again, this is stuff just within the last 50 years that shows that inside, we have 100 trillion cells in our body. Inside every single cell is the famous double helix of DNA. Yeah. If you were to unwind it from just one cell, it would be six feet tall. Hmm. And embedded in that DNA is a four-letter chemical alphabet that spells out the precise assembly instructions for every protein out of which we're made. Hmm. Now, nature can produce patterns. We know that. If you go down a beach and you see in the wet sand ripple marks, you could say, okay, the wave action created those patterns. But if you're walking down the beach and in the wet sand, you see John loves Mary with a heart around it and and an arrow through it, you wouldn't say, oh, the waves created that. Because whenever you see information whether it's in a computer code, whether it's a book, whether it's a painting on a cave wall, always, always, always there's an intelligence behind it. And the question that, that Stephen C. Meyer, who got his PhD in Origin of Life from Cambridge University, uh, who I interviewed for this book, um, the question he asks is, in light of that, how do we account for, we have more information, more words spelled out by this four-letter chemical alphabet, just like we use 26 letters in English, mm-hmm. use a four-letter chemical alphabet to spell out the assembly instructions. We have more words, so to speak, in every cell in our body than in the Encyclopedia Britannica. Where does that come from? I, so I think if you take if you take cosmology, physics, and biochemistry, that is the biological information in cells, it makes a pretty good case for the God of the Bible. This episode is sponsored by Athletic Greens, which is now called AG1. So it's really hard to get all the nutrients that your body needs without taking some kind of supplement. And I've tried many different supplements over the years. I've I've tried traditional vitamins, all kinds of green powders, and I found AG1 to be the absolute best nutritional supplement. It's packed with 75 high quality vitamins and minerals and whole food sourced ingredients, which uh, it just saturates your body with all the nutrition that it needs. It supports your overall gut health, which is really important for your overall 
overall health. Uh, it aids in digestion, helps improve your immune system, mood, energy, mental clarity, and it actually tastes good. Like it's not overly sweet, but just sweet enough to make it an actually like an, an enjoyable experience when you're taking it. Uh, I've been taking it for over a year now, and I can truly notice the difference. Um, I usually take it first thing in the morning, right before my coffee. Sometimes I'll take another serving in the afternoon if I'm feeling particularly uh, run down or tired. Um, but what I love most about AG1 is the sustained energy and mental clarity that I feel throughout the day. Like you can truly notice a difference. So if you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com forward slash T-I-T-R. That's drinkag1.com forward slash T-I-T-R. Check it out. This episode is sponsored by the Pour Over Podcast. Oh my word, I love the Pour Over Podcast. It is a trustworthy news resource guiding people toward eternal hope. It's not Republican, it's not Democrat, it's not conservative, it's not liberal. Instead, it is a Christ-centered summary of the major events going on in politics and in culture. Uh, like most of you, I am so tired of news outlets that are so clearly biased toward the right or to the left. I want to stay informed with what's going on, but I hate how traditional news outlets shape my heart and try to win me to a certain side. I mean, if you don't believe me, just ask yourself this question. After listening to, say, I don't know, CNN or Fox News for like 30 minutes, am I less or more or more motivated to love my neighbor and my enemy? If the answer is less than Houston, we have a huge problem, a discipleship problem. This is why I'm so excited about the Pour Over podcast. Each episode is only about seven minutes long and they just tell you about what's going on in the world. They don't tell you how to interpret the various events or how you should feel about what's going on. Instead, they just let you know about the facts of what's going on while reminding listeners that our ultimate identity and hope is in Jesus Christ. I've even met some of the people at the pour over and they are super awesome. They're not some like closeted liberal or closeted conservative think tank. Um, like they're truly genuinely just trying to keep us informed while staying focused on Christ. So. Don't let traditional media outlets steal your affection away from loving people who might vote differently than you. Instead, check out and subscribe to the Pour Over Podcast in your favorite podcast app. I, I didn't even think about that distinction between just a complex, like I just look at the complexity of yeah. the human body, right? You got a yeah. beating heart, even our reproduction and brains, right. I mean, let alone the brain, right? And then everything else, yeah, right. that alone. But DNA is different because you're saying that that, I mean, that's, yep. that's like, that's actual information. It's not just, it wow, these things happen to work together in ways that seem miraculous. Why does a heart keep beating? Why does a brain do all? Yeah, but this is actually coded yeah. information. It is information. And, and um, what's important about that is, as I said, information always has an intelligence behind mm -hmm. it. I mean, you can't find an example of it. Um, otherwise. So I think that's a really interesting uh, discovery of modern um, uh, yeah. genetics. And uh, again, I think it points toward an intelligence that's beyond us. Um, I, I don't know how you account for that. Uh, and by the way, to say that this code, this, this four-letter chemical alphabet is information or, or language hmm. is not reasoning by analogy. That's not an analogy. That is what it is. Oh, wow. So you can't discount it by saying, oh, yeah, analogies are weak because you can point to the positives and the negatives of analogy. And No, no, this is not an analogy. Yeah. This is actual language. In fact, it's interesting when um, 
um, when uh, a evangelical Christian geneticist, Francis Collins, yeah. led the team that decoded the human genome. And that was announced by President Clinton. What President Clinton said, I don't know if he realized how right he was being, but he got up and he said, we have now discovered the language in which God created life. And that's exactly right. It's the language. Um, So Mm -hmm. how do you do that by happenstance? And I go through the various other theories in the book about trying to explain it away. I don't find a logical counter argument to that. Well, that was my, yeah. And that was the title of um, Francis Collins' book, right? Wasn't it The Language of God? Yeah, that he, that's right. I forgot. Yeah, you're right. That's a, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So he, he he riffed on Clinton's, that's, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Right. And he became, right. didn't, he, be, he became a Christian through studying DNA, I think, right? Or was I don't, it prior to that? I, or, so. I, I think he was a Christian when he went into it. Okay. Yeah, I think he was actually homeschooled. Uh, growing okay. up. And um, uh, I, I'm pretty sure he became a Christian okay. like at 17 or something like that. I, I've been to the um, the pub in Cambridge where Crick and Watson, professors oh, yeah. at Cambridge, discovered yeah. discovered DNA or something. Like they would go to the pub, the Eagle. Uh, everyone yeah. knows about the Eagle in Cambridge. And, and, and there's a big plaque there saying this is where Crick and Watson would – you know, do their after hours kind of like uh, yeah. meetings and stuff. And they announced that, you know, they have, this, right. I forget what they you said, know, but they, yeah. His wife said that when he came home, uh, Crick came home and said, uh, hey, we discovered the the mechanism of life, the DNA, the double helix. He said, um, we discovered this. And and she said, I, I didn't believe you. And I, he didn't, she, she said, I didn't believe him. And uh-huh. years later said, why didn't you believe me? And she said, because you were always coming home and saying stuff like that. <laughs> I, I just discounted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, boy, the professor who cried you. wolf. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He cried wolf too many times. <laughs> I was, I was, I, I'm all, my, the way my brain works is I always think, okay, well, what was, what's the best, you know, yeah. steel man counter argument? Like, so what do people say? Is it, is it just, if someone's still an atheist, obviously they didn't know about DNA. Do they just say, yeah, I mean, between God and, you know, chance or whatever, like, I know this is extremely nearly, you know, impossible, but I think God is more impossible. So I'm going to choose to believe something that, well, they try to come up with different theories. One theory, and I, I I analyze each of these in the book, but one of the theories that seemed to hold some promise to try to explain it away was, okay, what if, um, uh, there's a self-organizational quality to these these um, um, entities, so to speak. Um, what what if the, there's something in just in the way they they exist that causes them to come together naturally in a way that forms these words and these okay. instructions? And, and there's actually a book called um, a Chemical Predestination <laughs> that was published by a professor of um, uh, genetics and uh, biology at uh, San Francisco State University. And he published this book with that theory that maybe there's a self-organizational quality inside cells that allows this to happen. Well, guess what happened? He ended up repudiating his entire book oh, wow. after it came out. And this was a book that when I was in college, this was kind of the big thing. And he came out at a conference in Dallas and said, I was wrong. You know, there's some basic um, attractional qualities, but it's repetitive. It it, it doesn't create information. 
and um, and is very basic. And and so he actually ended up repudiating his own book. And he ended up saying, I quote him in the, in, in the book as saying that um, he believes that the information in DNA is one of the strongest arguments out there for the okay. existence of a supernatural creator. Hmm. So it's not just a general you know, a, a universe that gives evidence of design most likely has a designer. That That's a very general, which is, I think, very powerful in my opinion, but the DNA yeah. just takes it, those gasoline on that, exactly. that argument. Yeah. It, it really does. I mean, for you know, you go back and what was the famous argument made by, um, I'm trying to think of his name, um, theologian in the 1800s, he says, you know, um, look at your hand. And uh, what was the argument? I think it was look at your hand and how, or no, look at your watch. Would you say yeah. that that a, oh, this yeah. could have come together by chance. Of course not. But then look at your hand. Your hand is more complex than that watch. How could you say that it, you know? So there were arguments for design uh, before the DNA argument, the, the design of the eye, for instance, and so forth. But um, but I think I think the DNA argument takes it to a whole new level. Would and, you agree? Uh, so I mean, this might take, I know we kind of got off, well, we didn't get off track. We just went back to more of the beginning of your book, but the, the kind of moral arguments against God, like, mm-hmm. um, because I, I, well, in your opinion, is, are people like with the first, let's see, four, let's say the first three chapters of your book, the co- cosmos requires a creator, universe needs a fine tuner, DNA demands a designer. Do you yeah. find those three are more readily accepted by people or believable Th- Those just seem so, I don't know, like objectively around. powerful at the very least. It's I more, I can, in my opinion, I think people, they, once they, once you kind of, they're there, then like, okay, but why would a good guy, they go to the moral stuff pretty quickly. Yeah. Is that, is right. that in your experience, do you, do you find that or? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think, I think people either consciously or unconsciously look for objections. Um, okay. And I say unconsciously because, you know, Romans uh, one verse 20 says that yeah. um, there's, there's sufficient evidence in nature for us to see the divine attributes of God, a clear other word without excuse, but we tend to suppress it. And um, I, I think people sometimes are looking for counter arguments or looking for ways to dispute something, um, not intentionally, hmm. but because there's something else driving. I'll give you an example. I think there's two trends in our culture today that I believe are causally related, um, although I can't prove it. And one trend is the increase in fatherless families. Hmm going through the roof. Number of fatherless families in America is going through the roof. The other trend is the increase in spiritual skepticism. Hmm. You know, when I was in, in, when I met my wife in 1966, um, 98% of Americans believed in God. Hmm. 98%. The number is now down to 81%. Okay. 81%. 81%. So historically low. So we're seeing this increase in fatherless families. We're seeing this increase in spiritual skepticism. I believe there's a correlation. Mm. You know, if you look at, um, um, uh, well, even Freud talked about it. Um, the idea that if your earthly father has abandoned you mm-hmm. um, or hurt you in some way, you don't want to really know about a heavenly father because he's mm. only going to be worse. He's not going to hurt you worse. And so you look for ways, you don't even realize you're doing this. You look for ways to fend off the evidence for God. Look at the famous atheists of history, uh, Camus, Sartre, Nietzsche, Freud, Voltaire, Wells, Feuerbach, O'Hare. Every single one of them had a father who died when they were young, divorced their mother when they were young, or with whom they had a very difficult relationship. Mm-hmm. And even in my life, 
Um, you know, I like to think, oh, I was an atheist because I was too smart to buy into Christianity. Well, you know what? I had a terrible relationship with my dad. And he looked at me on the eve of my high school graduation and said, I don't, I don't have enough love for you to fill my little finger. So um, we had a difficult. Now, was that driving my athe- my Did that pave the road for me to go into atheism? I think it was a factor. I didn't realize it at the time. Huh. Looking back on it, I think, you know, so I don't, I don't want to ascribe necessarily evil motives to people yeah. um, uh, who, who are fending off God. I think sometimes it's a it's a condition that they're not even aware of, maybe tied to something like that. Yeah. Um, but so I think people tend to uh, uh, try to manufacture excuses or like, for instance, I'll give you an example. Um, you had asked uh, on the argument for um, cosmology, whatever begins to exist as a cause, the universe began to exist. So there must be a cause behind it. And then the fine tuning of the argument uh, of, of the universe. Well, the counter argument that some scientists bring up is well, what if we're just one of an infinite number of universes? What if there's actually an infinite number of universes that we don't even know about and in principle can never know about? And yet, if you spin the dials of physics in enough of these universes, mm. you're going to eventually come up with one that, that all the numbers come up right, and that's our universe. We hit the jackpot. Well, I deal with that in the book because the problem with that is there is no evidence for that. I mean, I try to look at evidence of where, but there is no physical evidence whatsoever for that theory. In fact, I quote a, a prominent physicist, a German physicist, Sabine Hossenfelder, who says, um, basically, it's a waste of time scientifically. Um, she, and, and she said, by the way, there are very few scientists who really believe in the multiverse idea. But um, um, so I think people tend to manufacture ways in which they can fend off the evidence. Uh, some some ways are more logically yeah. coherent than others. Yeah. Yeah. L- l- that's really helpful. Um I'm I'm curious. So about the 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 problem of evil question. Yeah. Um I, yeah. I'm curious how you deal with that. I I, I well, yeah. Yeah. And it is, a, you know, it's, it's one of those questions. I, I say, I, I try to resist giving a 25 cent answer to a million dollar question. Yeah. But, okay. So in the book, I interview uh, Dr. Peter Kraft, who's a PhD uh, philosopher, Boston College, well known. He's actually Catholic, um, is, is a brilliant, brilliant philosopher. And um, he written a book on this topic that attracted me to go interview him. And so I spent the day with him. And so in the book, I think it's about a 50 page chapter that really get, delves into this issue. But I think the short answer is, you know, that God is not the author of moral evil and suffering. He's not the creator of it. That the Godhead has existed from eternity past as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect loving harmony. And therefore, love is the greatest value in the universe. And so when God decided to create humankind, he wanted us to experience the greatest value in the universe, to love each other and to love him. And to do that, he had to give us free will uh, because love requires free will. There's there's always a choice. You know, when my daughter was little, uh, this dates me again, dates her too. But way back then, they used to have a doll called Chatty Cathy. And uh, it had a string on the back. And if you pull the string and let it go, the doll would talk to you. 
So she had this, so she had this doll, and she would pull the string and let it go, and the doll would say, "I love you." <laughs> that was as high tech as it was back then. So, did that doll love my daughter? Of course not. It, it was programmed. It had no choice. It had to say that. So, love must require choice. And what has happened? We have chosen to turn our backs on God. We've chosen to hurt each other. You know, we grow enough food in this world to feed every man, woman, and child with 10,000 calories a day. But why don't we? Um, Because of our selfishness, because of our um, unconcern for starving people. You know, I can take my hand and I can pick up a gun and kill an innocent person, or I can take that same hand and feed a hungry person. But if I pick up a gun and kill an innocent person, it's a little disingenuous to say, God, why do you allow suffering in the world? You yeah. know, the problem is us. And yeah. so um, uh, I, I think that is a one kind of a summary of, of one way of looking at the evidence. I think Two, that even though suffering is not good, God has a track record of using it to accomplish good. And we see that in a variety of different ways. Um, um, uh, you know, Romans 8.28 says that God can cause all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Doesn't mean necessarily in this world. It could be the next world or whatever. But, um, you know, he promises to draw good. And if we doubt that, if we say, wait a second. You know, for instance, my wife has a neuromuscular condition and um, she has been in pain for 20 years and she will be in pain every day for the rest of her life because this is an incurable condition that she has. And so um, and she's a strong follower of Jesus. Um, And someone like her could say, wait a second, I've been in pain for 20 years. I'm going to be in pain every day for the rest of my life. Um, Um. I don't think you could possibly, God, draw any good from the suffering I've gone through. And I think the answer to that is is that God took the worst thing, the worst thing that could ever happen in the history of the universe, which is the death of the Son of God on the cross. Mm -hmm. And from that, he has drawn the best thing that's ever happened in the universe, which is the opening of heaven to all who follow him. So if God can take the worst thing in the universe and turn it into the best thing in the universe, I think we can trust that he can take even the suffering, even the difficulties that we endure and draw some good for it. Use it to draw us closer to him, Mm -hmm. use it to sharpen our character and so so forth. Um, And, you know, the Bible says the day is coming when suffering will end and evil will be judged. Well, golly, then why doesn't he do it? Why does and and the answer is he's holding back the consummation of history. He's holding back final judgment because there's still yet some people mm-hmm. who are coming into the kingdom of God who haven't yet. So I think yeah. it's out of his love that he's holding back his ultimate resolution. Because in time, all evil will be judged, all suffering yeah. will be, you know. And in light of heaven, what was the famous quote by Saint uh, Teresa of Avila? who said, um, in light of heaven, the worst suffering on earth would be like one night in a bad hotel. Mm. (laughs) That's basically what she said. That when, you know, after you're in heaven for 829,263,483 days in the presence of God, in the perfect joy and bliss and wonder and adventure of heaven, to say, oh yeah, I did suffer in my life before I got here. I did, but... In light of that, as Paul says, our light and momentary struggles take on a whole different 
perspective. Yeah. That's good. I mean, that, I feel like that's probably the most um, coherent and believable response to the problem of evil. I, I still have, I don't know. I, is it okay that it, I still have like question marks and I, I, I'm a Gen Xer raised in conservative evangelicalism. So I take a kind of a Job approach of, you know, yeah. why God? And God says, who do you think you are? I'm like, I'm sorry. You know, I'm, I'm like, okay, well, you're a creator. I'm not. And I, I'm, I'm actually, I'm okay. Like that's, that's kind of my default. So I, I come at this almost with, if God is creator, which I believe he is. And I believe that God revealed through the Bible is the best of all of the possible options of a deity, you know, I, I, you know, look at other options. I'm like, no, the, the, the biblical story makes the most sense. The most beautiful story, really not, not that there's not question marks there, but it's of all the options, I think this is the best we got. So I, I don't need to have everything ironed out, but like with the problem, so like it does make the, so the love part that that is, you know, if God created a bunch of people that couldn't have sinned, then that would be very robust. The, the, the whole idea of love would not be, and if he, here's the one for me. Okay. So he allows evil to run its course, but he could intervene. But that, would you say that that would be, here's a two part question. Would that be a violation of free will and love? But then are we not talking out of both sides of our mouths when we do pray, God intervene and God intervenes and saves us from cancer? We say, oh, God's so good. It's like, well, hold on a second. Like he didn't, that other person died of cancer. So he can intervene. He can violate free will when he wants to. Yeah. Do we just well, shrug our shoulders and say sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't, and we don't know how it works out? I'm, I, if that's the answer, yeah. I'm, I'm actually I'm okay not having it all ironed out. Yeah. But it still doesn't. I don't. I, if I was if I was going to sell a skeptic, I'd be like, yeah, you're you're right to have some question marks here. I don't know. Yeah, and I, you're right. There, <laughs> it, it, it is all right that that everything does get neatly tied in a bow. But I actually did a book called The Case for Miracles, where I, right. I document credible, corroborated cases mm-hmm. where God did intervene. And, uh, you know, I, I did a study where I asked a cross section of Americans, have you ever had an incident in your life you can only attribute to a miracle of God? And 38 percent of American adults said yes. So uh, I, I does God intervene sometimes? Yes, yes. But if he intervened every time we couldn't do science, we couldn't. Uh, how could we live? There's no predictability. The, uh, you know, science is based on repeatability and th- and and you you would have to take that away and say, no, no, God's just going to intervene left and right every day here and there and everywhere and um, um, override our choices and override things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just creates a, it would create chaos. So I think mm-hmm. there's a practical problem there. Yeah. Uh, you know, Yancey deals with that, Phil Yancey in, in his book about suffering. Mm-hmm. And then you could say, well, why so much suffering? Why, you know, could he not throttle back some of it, you know? And I think, and I deal with that in the book. I think the answer, uh, and Peter Crave does a better job of laying this out, but I think the answer is, at what point does it become too much? You know, I, I don't think we can, we can um, say if you put a kettle on a, on a stove, um, when the fire um, heats it up to, what is it? 212 degrees, whatever. I don't know. What is it? When it turns to steam, <laughs> Something like that. That's um, it will turn to steam. Um, um, but you can't say, oh, if you had this amount of suffering, mm-hmm. um, and you added one more case, oh, then it's too much. I mean, you just, it, there's yeah. no way to really measure that, but you know, I'm okay with some ambiguity here. Okay. Um, I'm yeah. okay with some questions. I'm okay with doubts. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. I have doubts about a lot of things, you yeah. know, I have my hand up in heaven and say, Hey, how does this Calvinism and Arminian thing fit together? Cause I don't get it. <laughs> you, know? Um, yeah. you know, it's okay that we have yeah. questions. You know, John the Baptist had questions when he was sitting in jail and had to have his buddies go ask Jesus, are you the one we've been waiting for? Are we to wait for somebody else? And Jesus didn't get mad at him for asking questions. The why doesn't he prevent more evil? I, that, that's a little ambitious to me because we don't have we don't have access to how many times God is behind the scenes uh, preventing right. evil from happening. We don't know how many genocides were would have broken out were it not for God behind the scenes stopping them. Yeah. Like, what if for every one genocide there was ninety nine that he stopped? It right. that one genocide still horrible, and not to downplay yeah. that, but that would put it into bigger perspective. You know, why did this person die of cancer and this person didn't? We don't know yeah. how many people God prevented from getting cancer in the first place, and right. you know, so yeah, that that right. one's not too. There's so much we don't know that we we're not even in a good spot to kind of offer maybe critique. I, I guess it's it's still the yeah the the thought of God well, having. Like to to me saying, well, he doesn't cause evil, but he does allow it to happen. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know. Like if I um, if I ran over my kid in a car on purpose, we would all say that's evil. But if I was watching my kid wander out into the street and I saw a car coming and I had time to run and grab my kid, but I simply allowed it to happen we would probably still call that kind of evil. Like, wait, you, did you see it coming? Like I did. Well, why didn't you stop it? Well, because I, I want my kid to have free will and you know, like we would, <laughs> yeah, right. and th- those are the ones that kind of trip me up. And then when God does yeah. intervene and, and grab the kid and rescue, we praise God, you know, like he yeah. rescued the kid yeah. from evil. Well, he didn't right. the other kid. And what do we do with that? And I don't know, right. like I'm, I kind of keep asking the same, but Here, here's how I look at it. Um, there are about 20 lines of evidence and argument that I believe point toward the truth of Christianity. Um, and, and I kind of picture it like, like a current on a river flowing in a okay. direction. And, and then we have stuff like the problem of evil and, mm-hmm. and, and the problem of the hiddenness of God and so forth that, that, that are kind of coming upstream a bit. Well, they don't negate the, other 20 lines of argument. They don't negate them. Mm-hmm. They raise some questions that need to be dealt with and wrestle with, and hopefully someday we'll have more better answers in eternity f- to those questions. Yeah. But they don't negate the affirmative evidence. It's interesting right. when um, John Steingart, the um, um, vocalist for the Christian band Hawk Nelson, uh, deconstructed his faith back in a few years ago, and it became a big deal. Uh, he walked away because he said God was too hidden to believe that he really existed. And yet, in an interview, he conceded that, you know, this doesn't negate all the other evidence affirmatively for the existence of God. And so you would have to come up with a theory that um, that somehow accounted for all of these 20 lines of evidence yeah. um, and, and dealt with those um, in order to also say that, you know, the case again, the case uh, is, is too weak to, for anybody to yeah. really buy into. So it's fair to say, that, I mean, just cumulatively, uh, the yeah. evidence would point to the Christian God as revealed through Scripture, again, yeah. in light of all the other possible options. And and that's where I, right. when I go through my periods of doubt, or like, is this whole thing, you know, I go back to that, you know, God, no God. And and for me, yeah. the, the case for God far outweighs, you know, and then I go, okay, which God? And then I look at all the options, yeah. and I think, you know, the, the Christian God makes the most sense cumulatively, 
Is it also yeah. fair to say with the problem of evil that the problem of evil is a problem for everybody, for everyone? Exactly. <laughs> every every worldview has to deal with it. You're exactly right. And, um, um, you know, what is the atheist going to say to a dying child at his bedside uh, to comfort that child? There's nothing he can say. Right. <laughs> you know, you're an insignificant yeah. blip in the history of the cosmos. And, you know, it's, you know, it, he has nothing to say at that point. Um, indeed, truly, atheism cannot really make a judgment on what is morally evil and what is morally good, um, because there's no there's no foundation for it. Um, you know, God provides that foundation for what is good and what is evil, and so um, you know, the atheist can't even claim that there's an objective good that's being violated by a child who's dying of cancer. Um, so you're right. Every worldview has to wrestle with this. And, and I think, mm. I think Christian has the best answer. Yeah. Does it satisfy us completely? Probably not, but that doesn't negate all the other evidence. And so I think it's entirely appropriate for someone to reach a conclusion based on the affirmative evidence that God exists and hold intention certain other issues that, you know, are, most of them are secondary, you know, um, but to hold these intention and say, someday, I hope I'll get an answer. Well, in Christianity is the only one, right? Or maybe other forms of Christianity that just that God chose to identify with suffering. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that, that, that solve that doesn't answer all my, you know, letting a car run over my child kind of analogies, you know, with the problem of suffering that I still, you know, don't have a perfect answer to, but that, that does yeah. create a lens. That's like, He's not looking at God. The Christian God isn't looking at this question from a distance. He chose, he had not only identified with it, but he chose, he didn't have to orchestrate yes. things that way. He could have come up with another plan. He could have, you know, clapped his hands three times and, you know, provided redemption if he wanted to, but he actually entered into the worst possible suffering. Like that, that at least colors the question it a little bit a, differently. It says a lot. I mean, John Stott said at one point, um, you know, I can go into a temple and see a, uh, a, a, a statue of Buddha. Um, and he has kind of a slight smile on his face a little bit. And, and you go, I can't worship a God like that. Mm. Um, uh, my God, the Christian God, the true God entered and his own choice entered mm. into our suffering. He partook of it. He suffered worse than I'm ever going to suffer. And, um, why did he do it out of love to redeem us so that we can spend eternity with him forever? And you go, well, yeah, that's true. That, you know, the, the, the question, your uh, Crafts put it this way, said, you know, the question mark that is raised by the issue of the suffering in the world is overlaid by the cross of Christ. That tells us that we have a God who loves us enough to enter into our world, into our suffering, and, and, and thereby procure redemption for those who follow him. Lee, I... You- you made me excited to read your book, so I can't wait to get it. <laughs> this is oh, really fascinating. This is an area like apologetics and all. It's not an area that I've I've read very widely at all. I did I did early on in my Christian journey. I feel like especially a lot of the early converts. That's pretty typical, and I just got lost in yeah. other things. Um, so I would almost like if I was put on stage and said, "All right, can you defend a faith against this?" That I, I probably wouldn't be yeah. very good at it. So I, I definitely would love to, um, yeah, work through your thoughts here. But th- anyway, thanks for coming on Theology and All. This has been a super fun and 
uh, I've really enjoyed it. Great yeah. to get to know you, Press. And I've read some of your stuff um, and been very impressed by it. Very, I quote, In fact, I quote you in the book, I think. <laughs> oh, really? You know, I, I quoted you in my heaven book. I wrote a book on the case for oh, heaven. Oh, no way. Okay. And uh, I Good or bad? You the, <laughs> Did you argue uh, against me? <laughs> I think it was good. Okay, but good. I quoted you on an annihilationism. Oh, okay. <laughs> and and um, I deal with that. And um, yeah. I was so happy because I was interviewed by someone recently on another topic. And he said off the air, he said, incidentally, I I believe in annihilationism. Okay, yeah. And I thank you for being in your book, spelling out the case for it okay. accurately and fairly. And um, and I think the case is stronger than, than most people realize until they really delve into it. Yeah. And But I thought you had some very profound own comments in that area and oh cool uh, yeah well thank you for that appreciate it yeah sure well have a good one yeah tell uh, Kyle I said hi (laughs) I will do that (laughs) awesome thanks man is part of the Converge Podcast Network.